This is Daniel Fagella, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast, where non-technical professionals stay ahead of the AI curve. In the last year and a half, you've probably heard a thing or two about large language models, LLMs as they're sometimes referred, and you might have even heard a little something about GPT-3, the famous large language model by OpenAI, which sort of put the term on the map. Many of the early demos of OpenAI's GPT-3 certainly opened my eyes, being able to see a system that could take a single paragraph and practically write a book about it, or take a single set of verbal prompts and be able to create a product description, or take a large page and summarize it into two sentences. And there's certainly a lot of future potential for the technology as well. Today, we wanted to focus on both of those themes, the current applications of large language models and where they might take us and how they might transform creative work. Our guest this week is Peter Wellander. He is the VP of Product and Partnerships at OpenAI. What I think you'll enjoy about this episode is the concrete examples of OpenAI's GPT-3 applications today, as well as some of the conversations with Peter around where this might take us in the future. We have an article series called AI Power, and if you go to Google, you type in E-M-E-R-J, you don't want, you'll find a recent article called You Don't Want What You Think You Want, which is about sort of programmatically generated content and the big picture changes that might come about when we can conjure whatever we want from AI systems, when they can customize themselves entirely to us. We don't go all the way into the far future with Peter, but at the end of this episode, we talk a bit about where that future might lead us. And again, you can see that full essay on Emerge. I'll mention it again in the outro of this podcast. But without further ado, I want to dive into the meat and potatoes of today's episode. Peter was a fantastic guest, and I'm grateful that he was able to be here with us. This is Peter Wellander with OpenAI here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, very glad to have you here. I've I've followed your guys' work for quite some time, and I'm very excited to be able to dive in on the topic of GPT-3 and where it might make its way into the world. I wanted to open us up with what separates GPT-3 from its predecessor. Some of the folks tuned in, and if you haven't already, listeners, are, are well aware of the really incredible sort of text work that GPT-3 is, is capable of in terms of what it can generate and understand. That's a big leap from sort of the previous technologies in this family. What made that jump? Because you were part of this development here. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the way I think about it is that what natural language processing used to be was that you would have all these different tasks and you would have specialized AI models for each task. So, you know, you might have seen things like translation systems. You would have a dedicated AI model, AI system that would do translation. Yes. Or you would do things like you know, named entity extraction, sentiment classification. So you would have a specialized model that could do that as well. But like these models were quite different in how they were engineered. And what was different with GPT-3 was that it was much more general model. And it, like, it was also quite different in another kind of major difference is that it was a model that was more complicated, much larger in some mm -hmm. sense yeah. than the previous models that have been kind of small in size you know, thinking in terms of like megabytes taking up memory. Uh, it was a model that was uh, maybe on the order of like two orders of magnitude, 100x larger than the, the previous models. And that size and the structure of this model allowed it to be very general. So you could apply it to all these different tasks. You could use it to do translation by simply asking, like the way you use GPT-3 is like you, you 
you tell it what you want it to do and it does it. So if you want to say, hey, translate this, this sentence to French, you know, it would just give you the French translation back. Or if you want to say like, well, what's the, what's the sentiment of this movie review? It would just tell you, you know, it's positive or it's negative. So it's the same model. You could you apply it to kind of all the existing use cases. But what became then really amazing is that you could also apply it to then all kinds of other use cases that just didn't exist specialized models for. So we, we've seen our users apply it to things like extracting questions and answers from articles for summarizing pieces of text, for doing search, semantic search in large document collections, to doing things like writing great product descriptions, or even like as just a writing assistant or a coding assistant. All these things you can do with the same model. And really, the only kind of limitation we've seen is like, what, what can people come up with? And that was a pretty big leap. You don't need all these specialized models anymore. You have sort of one model that can do all the things. Yeah, it can do all the things. One model to rule them all. So in part of this is, you know, you talked about the size of the model here. You know, some of the the famous, you know, TechCrunch headlines around when GPT-3 went live was, you know, the number of parameters, right? Oh, this gigantic bloviated number of parameters is sort of what makes it special. Is there anything else from a technical level other than how many parameters we added in that separated this GPT-3 from, from sort of its predecessors, this might be the way you selected parameters. This might be the corpus that maybe you did some kind of training on. I wasn't there, so that's why I'm asking you, but what are the other factors that caused the leap where now we have such a powerful general model? Because it's not, I presume it's not absolutely random features. There's, there's some strong engineering skill back here. Yeah, you know, this is so funny because it's sort of what happened with GPT-3 was that in some way the model got simpler but larger. And so when I talked about these models before, like the translation models or the sentiment classification models, they were like specialized all the way down to like how they were engineered for that particular task. But GPT-3 was trained in this really simple way where we basically collected lots of text on the internet. We scraped like, you know, just enormous amounts of text that yep. we found on the internet. And then the model is a, is a big neural network. And it's trained by essentially going through all that text and predicting the next word. And every time it predicts it correctly, it kind of gets gets some kind of, you know, some some feedback to kind of. And when it predicts the next word incorrectly, it gets some negative feedback. And you, if you do this a lot, like over, <laughs> you know, millions of GPU hours or whatever, then the model gets really good at predicting the next next kind of word in a piece of text. And that's what kind of made it really general as well, because then whenever you want to give it a task like it it kind of it kind of knows what what to do by just predicting what you expect it to do in some sense and in that way that's kind of how it was it was kind of trained in this much more general way it was not the first model that was trained in this way we had a, we had a few predecessors we had gpt2 and gpt gpt but they what really made it useful was that the size was much bigger and the data set, the corpus of text that we trained on was much larger. In, are there any other simple, so the, the reason I like this analogy here in terms of we trained it primarily on determining what word would come next in a string of text and if it got it right, rewarding it. If it didn't get it right, doing the opposite of rewarding it. I know somebody's going to make a sentience joke, so I'll let you guys listening in know that I've already preempted you there. My current belief is that GPT-3 is probably not not sentient. But in terms of that makes sense, because even as somebody who doesn't write the code, we could see, okay, that's as a way it was trained is very conceptually understandable. 
Were there any other such kind of rules of thumb used to sort of build and grow this model in addition to sort of the the next word? Or was that really the the core sort of mode of training was literally just just next word prediction? Or, or is there anything else we should understand? Yeah, it was really that simple. The first version of GPT-3 was that simple. Like it was somewhat controversial to create a model like this at the time because it's like, it's kind of too simple. You know, it's just like, yeah. really, there are no extra tricks. You know, there's just a ton of like engineering that goes into like, it's it's not easy to train a model like this. Since it's so large, you need to do it over like thousands of GPUs and so on. It just takes a ton of engineering to do this, right? And there's a lot of like little tricks around how how you manage to train it without it, it kind of, going down the wrong track and so on. But it's, at the core, it's really that simple. I think one thing that we learned over time, though, there was this idea of in order to get the model to do what you wanted, we, you had to do what we call prompt engineering or prompt design. What you do is like you, the instructions you give to the model, you need to kind of be quite careful how you instruct the model to do something. For example, yes. if you wanted the model to come up with a recipe, you sort of like, what has the model been trained on? It's, tons of like recipes found on the internet. So you kind of have to prompt it in a way, like how would a human on the internet write a recipe and kind of write it in sort of the same format as you would yeah. expect it, then the model would pick up on it and kind of do it. Oh man. Uh, but so that that prompt design was like, you know, we we had this guy, we uh, uh, that one of the early users, Andrew Main, who is actually now an employee of OpenAI, but at the time he was one of the first users and he became this like, prompt uh, GPT-3 whisperer. He was really great at creating prompts that that made GPT-3 do amazing things, like writing, writing really fun poems or jokes or or like even like computer games. You know, he, he was just like a wizard at coming up with the right prompt. Yeah, wow. I mean, well, hopefully we'll get into this once we talk about some use cases. We're about to make that transition, but I really do want to actually talk about that prompt design because I can see as this kind of technology becomes more and more commonplace that actually like right now, I think about an, a profession like, you know, architecture or something like that, or we'll, we'll stick with text maybe and talk about copywriting or something. A copywriter today needs to know where to kind of grab and paste things from, maybe needs to have some good templates handy, definitely needs some tech tools to be able to support efficient and also effective copywriting. But in the future, the tech tools they'll need to be savvy with might be tools exactly like the one you and I are talking about. And the skills there are going to be very different. They're going to have to understand prompt design in order to get the right kind of responses. I've seen things as funny as, and I'm sure you you know, saw this well ahead of when I did, but somebody had mentioned GPT writing better Python copy when the first sentence was, I am an expert Python programmer. And, and I just thought that that yeah. was hilarious. Like as a prompt design, it, maybe the future involves four short sentences that talk about how great you are in different specific ways, and then you actually give it the task. Like that might actually generate a better result. Kind of a wild space. But well, now that we're getting into use cases, I'll let you take the mic here, obviously, and and steer us where you want to go. When you've places where you've seen GPT start to get customized and find its way into some new and unique domains that might eventually have business value and an impact on the world, what are a handful of those that for you are really exciting? Yeah, I think generally the way I look at it is. There is this piece of, of prompt design. You need, to, as you said, like in, in order to kind of get, get GPT three to do something really, really as you want it to do, it's it's it, you have to be careful about how you provide the instructions. Like like the more detail you can give, the better it will get. Now, I think it's important to understand though that 
you know, GPT-3 is, is not far from perfect. It will make mistakes, you know. And in fact, some of the early copywriting applications, the reason they were really successful on using GPT-3, like there's a number of companies that have been really successful at using GPT-3 to create amazing copywriting products that makes it much easier for businesses to create good copy, which is like, you know, in fact, if you're like an entrepreneur or like a small business owner or something, like that's something that's not so easy. Like you have to kind of, you're not an expert at copywriting, no, no, but no. suddenly, yeah. you know, these models can help you. And the way this worked was that the model is not perfect. So if you want to say something like, hey, write a great product description for this pair of shoes I have, they're white, they're running shoes, and you describe the attributes, and then you want some good like ad copy for that, for example. GPT-3 can do that. It will not get it right all the time. It would like the first versions of GPT-3 maybe got it like you got something good, maybe out of 10, you get maybe two kind of good results. But what these early products did was they really kind of exploited that because it's sort of okay for most just get a few out of 10, you get like two good results because then you yep. pick those and yeah. then you kind of iterate on those and you build on those. So like it's almost more like you almost thought about it more like a brainstorming partner, like a writer's block kind of tool in yes. some sense to kind of yes. unlock you to figure out what to do next. And then what we have now enabled with GPT-3 is this idea of you can customize it. You can train it further if you have more data and you can like increase that probability of getting something good out. So instead of just getting something good out two out of 10 times with this approach that we call fine tuning of, of customizing the models, you can kind of push that up towards like 70, 80, 90% of the time you get something good out. Yeah. So that's kind of just setting the context here of like how we've kind of made these, these models more customizable. That's what I mean by customizing. It's like as you have more data, you can make them more reliable, more accurate for the tasks that you want. So just want to kind of set that context and, and yeah. I'm happy to even dig into some of the use cases where people have been successful with that. Great. And I mean, even just this idea of kind of customizing, I think is useful to understand. I would presume being somebody who is far from capable of building anything like GPT-3, but talking to people that are quite smart, that this kind of customization would, would in, involve either training more and more on specific kinds of corpuses of information and or being able to sort of get our team of human users to maybe provide to actually be that source of feedback. So if it's a very unique That's use right. case to get enough of our own info, maybe there's not enough on the internet, but we need to run enough loops into the big GPT-3 machine and, and and feed that back in. So that's kind of what I would presume. And I might presume, and I could be totally wrong here, that there would be some cases where we would lobotomize certain portions out of GPT-3. So there was a bunch of training on medical data and a lot of our, our lexicon of what we do in, I don't know, landscaping or something, like crosses over weirdly with medical sometimes. And like it always is a bad move. And so we just want to kind of get rid of all those terminologies. So I would presume we're doing training that's either pre-existing or that we add, and maybe we're scraping out, but maybe it's such a black box we can't scrape out. Talk to me about what customization actually means. Yeah, you know, that's such a great analogy because I think that's very true in some sense, like because these models have been, they've learned to be good at so many different things. Like GP3 has like, it's sort of, it's not like expert level, but it's like really good at copywriting. It's really good at writing recipes. It's yep. really good like doing summarization. It's just like, but it just knows so many different things. But each of these things, each of these skills takes up some capacity, right? Like yes. some capacity in the model. And so once you have a specific use case that you want, then you can start like by giving more examples of that, like you kind of grow the capacity that the model is focused on that use case that you care about. And it will be at cost, at the cost of some of those other things that you may not care about for that yes. particular task you're doing. So, yes. so to give you an example, like we have one of the our customers is 
a company called Keeper Tax, where they they classify financial kind of tr- transactions that you have on your credit cards and so on, and they they help you find things like write-offs. And they use GPT-3 to do this classification of based on like what the amount and the the text that comes with the transaction and so on. And they've gotten GPT-3 to go really good. They, you know, they have this thing where like they get like they've gone from the beginning it was maybe 85% accurate. Over time, they kind of added another percentage point like every week by having the model. Uh, do some classification, having some humans correct some of those classifications that were wrong. Then they kind of fed that into the model to do another customization yes. with the new data, and then it gets better. But you know, with still some some errors, and then humans will provide corrections to those. And so they kind of they bootstrap themselves with the base model, but then it kind of gets a better and better customized model until like it's like pushed to a level where it it does very few mistakes. But it, it takes the course of like a few. You know, weeks or months of user interaction to kind of get it to that. that yeah, level. Well, this is actually a really good example that you're bringing up. I'd love to dive into this with you here, Peter. So, a few things come to my mind immediately. One is for our listeners, they might not associate that with GPT three because they're like, "Oh, wouldn't it do text generation?" It's like, well, no, it actually can do the classification based on that same text generation ability. It can say, right. "What would this? What would this be labeled as? What would this label field be filled with?" Right? It can do the yep. same prediction game, and now it's it's doing what we would think of as like an accounting job. So this is GPT three powering things other than write me an article, summarize my medical paper, etc. So good for the audience to understand that. Number two, it does strike me that there are probably many many use cases where no matter how much training and feedback it's really actually going to be a toughie. So I, I think actually about this tax example, we followed many of the companies in this space. It's It's been a tough ball game, right? A lot of them have to farm a lot of things in the Philippines. Some are more open about it than others. But the context, the, one of the issues with sort of the line item in, in accounting is that it isn't just what's in that line item that will definitively decide, is this a gift or is this a travel expense or is this, right? It's It's a travel expense when I was you know, driving through Chicago and I needed to buy it for this reason, but that's not in the data, right? That's not in the data. So something like tax, it's not like, oh, train it enough and it's 100%. If the context isn't there, it really can't. So is there something to be said here about the use cases that are the best fit for this? Because, you know, there's some worlds where even GPT-3, it just doesn't have its tentacles in that base information to make a decision. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And the way I think about it is that it's like, while we found that GPT-3 is like extremely good at classification tasks, it's kind of better than, once you start customizing the model, it's it's hard to beat it. The places where it really like shines though, I think is much more in the text kind of generation realm as you talked about. Like hmm. So things like summarization, we have another customer viable this summarize customer feedback, or you can do question and answering on customer feedback. Like imagine you have like a little feedback kind of widget or something like that, and you get you get feedback from your customers, and you want to you want to process that. Like you, if you have thousands of items of feedback, like how how do you do that? Well, they let you ask questions on that. Like what should I be? What is like one thing I should change on our front page? And you know they use GPT three then to find the relevant where your customers talk about what's happening on your front page and what they're asking to change. And it will then summarize those results in just a very natural way. And so they, for example, use customization to improve the quality of these summaries to be like more, more accurate. And, and I think generally, when you do de- like this kind of generative use cases, oftentimes, in order to kind of get it right to the right tone that you want, it's like, like 
customization is really useful for that. Adding more data, adding more examples yeah. of like the sort of tone that you want. Like it's it's sometimes hard to describe it. In, if you do the like the prompt design, it's sometimes hard to describe exactly what you want. Yeah. But by giving a few like more and more examples, it kind of homes in on like the attributes that you're really after. You know, I can't help but think about the sparks that go off in my mind while you're talking here, Peter, because I I imagine a world where I ask GPT three for resources for a certain article I'm writing, and then it just finds stuff on the web that, that could be relevant. Maybe even I just ask for direct quotes about a certain topic, and it finds direct quotes for people to meet certain criteria. Maybe at some point, it can write a halfway decent introduction. Maybe at some point, with maybe six, maybe a dozen, maybe a 100 articles written by Dan Figella, it might pretty well be able to take a list of bullet point main topics and an interview and turn it into exactly how I write. I'm not going to lie, probably better, right? If I don't have an editor, I'm in a rough spot. So I, I can really see a future like that. I hope I'm not being misguided about where this could go, but but this is sort of where my head's going, Peter. Yeah. And in fact, I think this is this is like the sort of use cases which we're seeing more and more, which is like almost you're kind of personalizing GPT-3 in some sense. So yes. To really adopt it to your tone. And and like we, we're definitely also seeing more chat-like kind of use cases where it is really about giving very realistic conversations and so on. And the model is really good at doing this. In fact, what we see, anybody can go to our website and, and sign up and start just playing with GPT-3. We have this thing we call the, the playground, where you can essentially you know, talk to GPT-3 and have it do things. It's really fun. I encourage anybody to do it because it's just really, really fun. And some things that people really like to do is they, they'd like to have conversations with historical figures you know if you want to have yes. a conversation with you know George Washington or something about like you know the history of the United States you can do that like you can set up you basically uh, you can design a prompt to have a conversation you have back and forth and, and GPT 3 draws on everything it's read about what George Washington to essentially assimilate them it's a pretty wild experience to do this I tell you what Peter and I, I presume you'll be comfortable going here with me I definitely see a future and I, I couldn't say the year. I'm not going to put a year on. I don't know crystal ball. But I could definitely see a future where anytime you want to learn something, unquestionably, the most transcendently useful way of learning will be to have an AI generate precisely the resource with the succinctness and the response that you want. Or when you want to be entertained, the only things that will entertain you anymore will be the things that are conjured up hyper-personalized specifically for what brings you elation yep. or relaxation or what have you. And so I see a space where the, you know we can fun talk about George Washington. I also see a place where I go to friends to talk about business right now, uh, uh, You know how to handle HR stuff or whatever. I, I go to friends to talk about relationship things maybe. I can see a future where those conversations are transcendently more productive through kind of a voice interface or text interface with, with AI. And this really does bring us to a world where the good content is not analog. The good content is trained to the individual user based on their objectives, entertainment, relaxation, maybe a sense of confidence before a meeting or something like that, you know, learning a specific thing. And it's not you're going to go read and summarize a book yourself. No, it's here's the four paragraphs that based on your learning gaps, you exactly need to learn. And no one's even written any of those sentences have ever existed before. It's just for you just for your one random prompt. Yep. Let me know what your thoughts are on where I'm steering here, but I definitely think about the big game. I'd love your thoughts. Yeah, no, I love this direction. Like, I think education generally is like this huge area where I think AI can have such an incredibly positive impact. 
there is one company, a Swedish company called Sana Labs, who is using our API for to essentially build educational material for on more like internal things. Like if you have if you're a company, you have lots of documentation on your various processes and so on. You want to teach your employees that you know. Imagine like for most subjects, right? Like you have. If you want to learn physics, there's like some professor that's put together a really good textbook and so sure. on. But they, you can't do that for every company. No. Like, what is the textbook no. on uh, on any company? Like that takes a lot of effort. So what they have done is they've used GPT three to take tons of content that employees needs to learn, and they generate like things like questions and answers on that. So use GPT three to read the content and then generate a set of questions and a set of answers. So that then like basically it helps people just study. Here's a question. Okay, so now I've read the content, what's the answer? And you know, you get these kind of flashcard systems. Yeah. And and so they built these things. And I think that's just kind of scratching the surface of what this can become. And you know, in this case, they've used all the tools we have. They started with GPT-3, they customized models get much high, higher accuracy. Our latest models they, they actually came back and told us that, hey, for our, your latest models, you don't need to custom we actually don't need the customization <laughs> feature. Wow. It just works out of the box, which is great. But you know where this is going is i think there is this really interesting what's this really interesting study made in the 80s i think it's i forget the, the study's name but the main author was bloom and i think it's called like the bloom's two sigma problem and it's this idea that if you have a class of students and you have a teacher that teaches them you will get a certain average score of the people in the class but if you give each student a personalized tutor and teach them the same subject, then they will all end up at like the 90th percentile yeah. in terms of scores yeah. versus like that original class that had yes. only a single teacher. Yes. And you know, of course, we cannot give a teacher to any person no. on the planet. Well, but with AI, yeah. we have that opportunity. We, like, we, I, and you know, that I think is so exciting. I, I think it's exciting too. And, and even the use case, like this stretch is pretty deep here. So this idea of, whatever you want to learn something, it is no questions asked better to conjure it from the machine than it is to go and find it, I think is a future we land in. Video, audio, whatever media, at some point piped into some brain computer interface. I won't talk ahead of myself here. But but yeah, I really think that that's transcendently likely. That's where we're going. And I think that it goes the same way with entertainment, right? Like right now, if you and I had to go back to 1820 and entertain ourselves, what would we do? Like move a, a barrel hoop down the street with a stick or something? Like what did people even do? Like you and I can go on YouTube and like, I don't know, what, whatever we want to watch, right? Literally anything. We can right. literally, we can literally experience almost any sensory perception stuff that we want. And that's not even really with AI. At some point, you'll not only get like the video or whatever, but it'll be hyper responsive just to you or the text hyper responsive just you. It seems as though at some point you don't go back from that and, and things become an audience of one. I'm not going to say if that's yeah. good or bad. And by the way, I, I think it depends on where the world takes it. I'm not making a moral judgment here, but I just want to talk about that as a possibility. Is there something to be said of that, Peter, or an argument against it? I would love your thoughts about this idea of kind of learning, entertainment, whatever. It's going to be just for you and your little world. What are your thoughts there? I think you're right. I think that's definitely where we're going. We've been talking a lot about text here, but like we have other models. We released this model called DALI, where you go from text to images, and you can sort of see where that is going. You mentioned like entertainment, so yes. like like where you essentially get more and more customized entertainment, and we actually see this already. Like there's some some creative people on on Twitter ha have shown examples where they've essentially generated 
stories using GPT-3, and then they've illustrated those stories using DALI, our text-to-image yes, model. Yes. So you get basically whole like whole storybooks, illustrated storybooks made by AI. So that, and I find this incredibly fun. Like I have a five-year-old, and you know, one thing we do is like we sit down and with GPT-3, like he will ask him, like write a story about you know a fire truck that finds his police car friends and they go out to the <laughs> to the forest and there's like some giant robot out there and he's like I can't come up with a story but like GP3 would do it would come up with something really really fun and he's like yeah keep keep going keep going you know yeah. so it's like I think there's something really exciting there obviously like the education space it's it's great because it's like you don't have to be embarrassed about your questions anymore you yeah. you don't fall behind but I think the entertainment stuff is also going to be just really really fun to be honest like I'm an optimist by heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I think it's obviously something to be said about seeing what other people like, like having kind of more generalized experiences. But I think what we will end up with here is actually much more that you will be able to get creative experiences for yourselves. But everybody, like the low, the barriers to becoming a creator is going to be much lower. So that means yeah. that there's like you will be able to go not only can do things for yourself, but see what your friends have created and experience that and so on. So I think, I actually think this would be really exciting in so many different ways. I think so too. I see a world where some people go into entertainment full-blown Lotus Eater style because it will be so immersive. I see a world where some people marshal these technologies in line with like their ambitions and build a world where everything is responsive to the goals that they're trying to achieve. Everything. They don't touch anything. They don't see anything. Information is like irrelevant if it's not helping them get to like their grander objectives. I think there's so many ways to tailor this to sort of what your life is and, and where you want to go. And I hope our right. listeners today have a bit more of an open mind as to maybe the bigger picture trajectory. But also, Peter, I'm grateful to you that not only did you open up the big picture, but you talked about some of the places from summarization to categorization and beyond where this stuff is making an impact today. So I know that's all we have for time, but Peter, this has been a ton of fun. I appreciate you being on the show. Thanks so much. For fun. Thank you so much for having me. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. A big thank you to Peter for being able to join us. I liked his anecdotes and his existing use cases. Maybe some of you with small children at home might want to try out some of Peter's little fun experiments that he's using with his young child. I thought that that was kind of a cool idea. I think writing and illustrating children's books may be just the right job for AI in the next five years ahead. As I mentioned in the intro here, we only had so much time to talk about the farther future of AI as it becomes more and more powerful. If you're interested in the broader consequences of a world where AI can generate any kind of content that we're looking for, you might want to check out our recent essay in a column called AI Power, which I write myself every quarter. That essay is called You Don't Want What You Think You Want. You can find it by going on Google, typing in E-M-E-R-J, you don't want. It'll be very, very easy for you to find. And you can sink your teeth into that article if you're interested in the more far-reaching consequences of AI that can generate any kind of content or any kind of media that we as human beings want it to be able to generate for us. We have another episode with OpenAI coming out in the months ahead. The next one will be focused on DALE 2, the system for generating images from text. You will not want to miss that episode. Again, it's going to be airing live something in the next 60 days or so. So stay tuned for that. And otherwise, keep it locked here. I look forward to catching you in the next episode here on the AI and Business Podcast.